Hello, and welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Jason Isaacs. Jason's the third of four sons, born in Liverpool to Jewish parents. The family moved to London when Jason was 11. He studied law at Bristol University, then moved into acting after becoming involved in the drama society. Jason's gone on to star in many Hollywood films, including Event Horizon, Armageddon, The End of the Affair, and The Patriot, as well as playing Lucius Malfoy in all eight Harry Potter films. Jason lives in London with his wife, the filmmaker Emma Hewitt, and their two daughters, Ruby and Lily. I'll be talking to Jason today via a video call. Jason Isaacs, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. Thanks very much for having me. I, uh, it's, uh, it's an odd thing to look forward to having a chat about subjects that are so serious, but I spend so much of my life uh, nowadays when I'm doing Zooms or chats or you know promoting things or raising money for charities, trying to be funny. Spent my entire life trying to make people laugh and making little gags, so it's an odd feeling, knowing that this was going to happen, that I that I should drop all that and try and have a serious chat. You might not need to be serious all the way through the chat. Well, no, but I could also crack gags all the way through. But I've listened to some of the others, particularly Greg, who's a friend of mine. I thought it was the most beautiful and moving and inspiring conversation you had. Uh, I have nothing to even approach that, but um, I'm really glad that I got to listen to it. Can I start today, Jason, by asking you to share with us um, or tell us about the significant death you've experienced in your life? Um, I suppose it's going to have to be my mum. I thought about it. There's a, there's a few people in my life that died, but I spent so much of my life avoiding it. So many times there were opportunities to be present for people. Uh, and I was, and I ran away. I, I rationalised reasons why I couldn't be somewhere, or you know, couldn't see them that much. Or um, I just, I don't know if it was conscious, but I just didn't want to be around it and, and tried to avoid it um, for a long, long time. And you know, I lived through a time when people had AIDS, and I had a friend die, and came actually flew to England to have a party, and uh, it's a perfectly justifiable reason why I couldn't get there or make it. But but looking back, I, I think. I've always avoided it. Um, so my mum died a few years ago, and I was able, really privileged, to be able to be present uh, for quite a lot of it. I mean, for you know, for the the process whereby she faded and then died. Um, and I was so so grateful uh, that that I'd changed and that life threw me uh, this you know availability. Uh, so it'll be my mum. What do you think you were avoiding? I think I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to be confronted by it. I thought it would, I don't know, I think I thought it would traumatize me. When I was younger, I um, uh, I was high a lot of the time. I took a lot of drugs for a very long time. And uh, and that skews and 
you know, magic mixes your emotions up anyway, and you're not living in any kind of reality. Uh, and I think I avoided all kinds of reality, and there is nothing more real than death. And uh, being able to look someone in the eyes and, and not distract them with gags or with some way of uh, turning it around and, and being able to just engage properly with what it is and let it sit with both of you was something that was far, far from my skill set and my uh, and my self-knowledge. Um, and I was that thing, you know, when you're younger, you feel immortal and you don't want to be reminded of uh, of mortality. I mean, this, this is in retrospect. At the time, I, I'm sure I would find all kinds of um, things that sounded sensible and reasonable. But the truth is that I ran from it. When you were younger, as a family, were there conversations about death and dying? Was it something that was open or was it something that you were sheltered from, kept from, wasn't discussed? My family didn't have, still don't have, um, serious conversations with each other about anything, certainly about uh, the more profound issues in life. I grew up Jewish, for instance, very Jewish, um, in the sense that the, all the rituals surrounded us. But we never had a conversation about faith. I don't think any of us believed in God or any of it. It was a kind of tribal ritual thing. Um, I don't remember any serious conversations that touched on uh, the bigger questions of life. The only thing I took from my mum, I guess mostly, was that the point of life is service. You know, I, I, I saw that. She never talked about it, but I just saw that my mother threw herself. She was of that generation of women, most of whom didn't work. Um... But she could have run a country, you know, she could have run a planet. And instead she poured all of this slightly disturbed energy into trying to save everyone everywhere, um, slightly neglecting her family at the same time and getting no credit from us uh, for it. But I, I think in the absence of conversation, the, the, what I took from them, one of the reasons I'm here talking to you today and that I've been involved with Marie Curie and lots of other charities is it's the only source of real satisfaction in life the the only thing apart from close loving relationships with people um it's the only thing that fills the hole it's the only thing that makes you feel like you're a worthwhile member of the planet uh, i think and i didn't learn that through words i just learned that by osmosis from my mum, who was an amazingly difficult woman so when we talk about her dying and at the end of her life she was uh, uh she wasn't a saint she did lots of things for lots of people and saved lots of people uh in making that omelet she broke every egg she ever came across. Can we um, go to your mum's illness? I mean, how, how did your mum die? Uh, so she'd started to get some, she was at 80, I think, no, she was 79. And she'd, uh, she'd been a very big woman all of her life. She, you know, I come from a family with a bunch of addictive disorders. Hers manifest in eating, I think. And she uh, started to lose weight, lost a lot of weight. And they did various investigative things, including a, a stomach operation, uh, which was really the beginning of the end from which she never recovered. And um, this extraordinary thing happened. You know, life aligned all the dominoes for me. I was filming, I was offered a television series in Israel where my mum uh, lived, had gone to live with my dad a year ago. And uh, she was clearly getting sicker and I was filming and they couldn't find the source of it. She did various scans. Nobody ever came out and said, your mum's riddled with cancer. And yet it was clearly obvious. I've got doctors, and I've got a brother who's a doctor, a nephew who's a doctor. It was clear that it wasn't she was having trouble recovering from this operation. But numbers of tests never seemed to yield any results, which is either mysterious or maybe she had meetings they didn't tell us, or uh, certainly nobody, including my father, knew. But she was not getting better. 
Uh, and to add into the mix, she had um, some kind of uh, early or low-level dementia for the last year or two, uh, which meant that she was very uh, grumpy and angry and doubting a lot that other people were giving her the full picture. Um, but she was so bright, she covered up most of it by quickly changing subjects or uh, kind of you know getting very upset and leaving the room. So it was very difficult to get her to engage with that. Consequently, it was very difficult to get any real medical facts out of her. And um, she wanted to come home. My father couldn't cope with her. So we were trying to find somewhere for her to live, and she wouldn't go. She was very uh, grumpy is the wrong word. It's a kind of a childish word. But, you know, she was, it was difficult. So we found an old age home with a medical ward in it. And she said, you're trying to pack me off somewhere. Uh, and my dad, in an unbelievably heroic move, said, no, no, I'll move in with you although it was perfectly well. And there was a private room with two beds in it, and they moved in there. And just when they moved in, bombs started going off in Israel. A rocket started coming across from Gaza. This is 2014. And uh, the production that they were shooting obviously shut down. The insurers shut it down. They sent everyone home. And, um, and I got to stay just at the moment my mum moved into this place. And she was there for months, fading away. Um, not quite understanding why she wasn't getting better, but, you know, continually talking to doctors and stuff. And everybody around knew, not because we had a diagnosis, but because it was clear that she was fading. And I got to be with her there. And various brothers flew in at various stages. And my wife and kid flew out for a little bit uh, until she died. And we buried her. And I got a phone call saying, the show's back on. We're shooting in Croatia. And I got back on a plane and I went and carried on filming. So there was this gap appeared in my frankly, over-busy life, I wouldn't have been able to accommodate it otherwise, um, where I got to be there every day. And uh, it was just, I'm not a believer, but it was a godsend. It was a, it was a miracle. So there was no conversations about what was happening because there was a lack of information, or was there a lack of information and no conversations? Yes, there were conversations between uh, the brothers and my dad, now various wives, uh, all the time. But there was no there was no actual scientific confirmation, but you'd have to have been an idiot not to see that my mum was fading. And, and, and of course, near the end, she was skeletal. Um, but there was no conversation with her about it. She did occasionally get confused and say, I'm not getting well, but there was never any point at which she got to engage with the fact that she, you know, the, the doors were closing. Um, I think she must have sensed it, but she wasn't a woman who held back. She did at one point put my kids and my brother's kids or four little girls together on the bed and and say something that of course they don't remember because they're kids <laughs> um, but uh, she'd done a lot in her life uh, saved a lot of people and she said just want to tell you one thing girls you can achieve anything you can do anything never ever let anybody tell you and she wasn't talking about work she went you can change the world if you believe in it hard enough and you work hard enough and um I remember thinking, go out on that, you know, because we all dealt with that thing of, you know, she, you felt terrible, but she was obviously going to die, and it was taking a long time. I mean, some people die for years, but but it was difficult going to this room every single day for months. And I thought, oh, I hope my girls remember that. That'll be the last thing, you know, that she says. Look at her, she's, there's nothing left. But as anybody listening to this who's been around people dying knows, uh, the instinct to live and to fight and survive particularly in a warrior like my mum, keeps them around for a long time. What kind of conversations were you and your brothers, were you and your dad having? This is where it gets tricky for me because I've listened to some of these podcasts and people have 
um, life-changingly open and vulnerable and honest conversations, but my family aren't like that. And so, um, I don't know. I don't know that we were engaging with pre-grief. I mean, there's also, there's a thing about even when people are dying, obviously, in front of you and you know how it's going to end, it still shocks you. And, and, and for me, at least, uh, and I think for all of us, it doesn't really affect you then there in the Jewish religion, you have to arrange a funeral the next day. So you're fully in the admin and bureaucracy of it straight away. So it's a good period of time before you realize that person isn't there to call. Like, you know, that person, there's moments you go, oh, she'd like, this. oh no, she wouldn't like this, she's not around. Um, so we we didn't have, we had conversations about what we were going to have for dinner. You know, we had conversations about uh, how long was it going to go on? Should we extend the thing for another month? You know, we, we didn't, we're not a family that has those profound conversations. When we do, we're all very cynical and cut it short or we cut it. You know, we're from Liverpool, so every time you open your mouth, it ought to be a gag or it ought to be making fun of someone else, you know, that, or else it's a wasted word. Um, I don't know that we took solace or prepared ourselves. I don't know if you ever can prepare yourself. We were just, the most important thing was that we were there. So we're not very good with words. I don't know that we comforted each other. Uh, we were supporting each other. I don't know what we were doing. But the fact is that we were there. We were able to be there. My, I have one brother who's a psychiatrist, and others retired. They they managed to suspend lots of their life and be there intermittently. I was there permanently. Uh, and then my, my wife did something brilliant. She arrived, and she walked into the room, and she went, what's the matter with you? What's the matter with you and your brothers? Let's make this room nice. Let's change the lighting. Let's put some pictures on the wall. Let's get some music your mum likes. If she's going to die here, let's make it a lovely room full of memories. And she just took control of us all and uh, changed the mood entirely. And she said, let's have, let's have relatives come. Let's have a picnic. Let's make this. There was just there were French windows, amazing, in a little courtyard. And you could hear the birds. She went, open the windows. Get a little table outside, you know. Make it nice. And um, that changed everything in a way. My wife arriving and going, you're all just a bunch of idiots. This is not a medical procedure. This is someone leaving their life. Uh, and we did that. And so, yeah, I don't know that I, not I don't know, I do know that we didn't and maybe still haven't had conversations of any great significance that if you saw them written down, you would take solace or strength from. But far more important that we were there, you know, we were able to hold a hand, tell stories. She had this friend who came in and put hand cream on her every day. I didn't understand at the time, and now, of course, I understand. It was just to hold her hand and rub. She didn't need hand cream. Her hand wasn't dry or anything. It was just the comfort of that. And um, there was this incredible nurse there in this place who volunteered. She was older than my mum. I mean, she's got to be 80-something. She'd retired and come back because she missed caring. And, um, you know, I've... Like I say, I've listened to some of your podcasts and, and I work for, with, whatever, on behalf of Marie Curie because I think what they do and what the, what they provide, the kind of love and comfort they provide is extraordinary. But we didn't have Marie Curie, we were in Israel. And, but there was somebody who came in every day and just loved my mum. You know, sometimes in ways that we couldn't, you know, taking her to the loo and washing her down in the bed and stroking her hair. and She just gave her love. And we tried to give her love, but we're, not, we're a family that are maybe not so great at that. And didn't want a reminder that she was dying, uh, I suppose. Um, so we, you know, we chatted to her like she was have, had a long illness from which she'd eventually come home. But this nurse just looked her deep in the eyes. She'd obviously seen lots of people pass, and um, and it was. I remember just thinking, 
you know, she did it because that was her, she understood what it gave her to come and be of comfort. And, and I think it inspired the rest of us as well in the, who were in that room every day. And you use words like love, you know, that the nurse came in and provided. And I think the, you know, the hand cream, the touch and the intimacy as well. Um, I was really struck and it just got me thinking about environments and the environments in which people die. And how, when your wife turned up, you know, she wanted to create a different environment. She came in and had a sense of something that she knew she could impact and change that would benefit everybody, including your mum. And that's really interesting, isn't it, about the environment? It is. Well, her granny um, used to come and stay with us at Christmas and then, she, uh, we begged her to live with us, but she, and then eventually she stayed and didn't go home quite well enough. She'd fallen, broken a hip, uh, and she we converted a room downstairs. So there was no steps or anything, and uh, and she got sick and died here in our house. And I was making a film. I was backwards and forwards all the time, um, and I think you know she, her granny, her mum, my wife, my daughters, four generations of women, were in that room all the time, making it nice, brushing their hair doing her nails, you know, putting music on that she liked and um, providing memories, knowing that she was going. They did know she was dying. And I remember I'd just got on a plane to go back to uh, America. To, you know, I've, Every time I had three days off, I'd fly home. It was Whatever, it was expensive, difficult, who cares? So I, managed, it, I came home to provide some support for my wife, really, not for my grandmother-in-law. And I got on a plane, I got off in New Mexico, and there's this huge rainbow. And I phoned up my wife, I went, is she gone? I don't want to sound like I'm in some, you know, like some Sunday afternoon soap, but I just, and she, yeah, and she was crying and crying. I said, don't, don't let the kids go in. And she went, the kids are in there. They're dressing them. They're putting sweets in their pockets. They're doing their hair. Of course, I hadn't seen a dead body until I was in my 30s. But they, my kids, you know, that was, it was Gigi, they called her, and they'd been with her every day, and then she wasn't there anymore. But they wanted, they knew that she cared, that she had the right lipstick on and stuff. And they were completely undisturbed by that, undisturbed to see my mum dead as well, you know. Um, very different attitude, but, but I think my wife maybe learnt from that, or maybe never had the barriers there that, in the first place, that, that I would have had, and, and slight revulsion and fear of being around it. And sometimes an opportunity, you know, to to try it out and to be brave and to see how it makes us feel. And um, you know, I think often for people, you know, um, it's it's not it's not something that you're going to have to experience. Hopefully. Um, lots of times in your life, we know some people do more than others, but actually, um, yeah. Well, it's slightly magical. I feel I, I feel everybody should get to experience it. It sounds weird and patronising. What I mean is that everybody used to die at home with their relatives. That's how people died forever. And now you go, you know, I was just listening this morning, some, the statistic that, you know, 80% of the NHS spend or 70% is on the last two years of people's lives because they go to hospital and they're wired up and they, you know, maybe you don't get the food you want when you want it and there's no comfort and you're in a ward. And if you could be at home, if you knew you were dying, I mean, that's a hard thing to say for anyone, but if you could be at home and, and the relatives around you have space and time and a good enough relationship, how much better to fade looking into the eyes of people you love than looking at a, you know, a, a fluorescent light. Um, so, yeah, but I, I was... I felt incredibly privileged to be there. I was actually holding my mum's hand as she took her last breath and just stopped breathing. Um, I felt slightly cheated of conversations that, you know, should be carved in stone and put on the wall, but I'm not sure we would have said anything 
particularly profound or interesting, you know. Uh, um, so, and you know, my mum had this dementia, so I, I, it, I don't know that it would have been wise because we debated with each other whether to say to her, you know, mum, you're dying. And, you know, I don't know if you'll be around much longer, so you must say what are the things you want to say or do before then. It didn't feel right. Something something rather magical happened, actually. My mum was a very difficult woman um, in lots of ways. You know, she had a huge heart, but she also w- was cracked and damaged in the way lots of interesting people are. Um, and I had lots of old resentments, things I would want out, you know, things if I was writing the bad version of this as a, as a play, you know, that, that you would finally have out that would... Uh, um, but towards the end, all of her spikiness and difficulty and defensiveness and all the stuff that the dementia had accelerated faded. She became like an incredibly sweet eight-year-old child, incredibly grateful for, to everybody and incredibly loving. And so there was no point. It would, it, not that there would ever have been a point, but there was no point trying to bring up and later rest old ghosts because she was just... Uh, angelic at the end you know she was the, for the last weeks and months she was nothing like the woman she'd been for many many decades and at the time I remember discussing this with my brothers going it's weird you can't even have the big serious conversations you want to have you know to, to somehow uh, but of course we were given exactly what we needed that they, they would have been destructive and uh, unhelpful and never go the way you want them to go anyway and um, she was stripped away of all the stuff that we all layer on that we think defines who we are and was back to something very, very pure. And it was such a privilege to watch it and to be around it. So you were there and you were holding her hand. And were there other family members present? Yeah, yeah, we're all in the room. She'd done, you know, I don't know if I believe any of this, but, you know, she's got four sons and uh, two of them, you know, three of us live in England. One, my brothers lives in Israel. And the other two were backwards and forwards. I was able to stay there because my television series had shut down. So I just decamped. And they'd come back and forth, and, and she was clearly near the end. And she waited, I think, until my eldest brother, who's always been the kind of patriarch of the family, he's a bit older than the rest of us, he'd be more like an uncle when I was a kid. She waited until Jeff arrived and got off his, you know, 20th easy debt that month, whatever, and walked into the room. And she looked at him and she kind of sighed and she was holding my hand. And she just, you know, you can hear the death rattle, the, the, the breath, you know what it is, you know, for some time before. And she just breathed and breathed heavier, and then just stopped. And um, yeah, it was it was it was shocking because you felt like at that stage, having been around uh, for what months, uh, you didn't ever think it was over. You thought, oh, well, this is what I'm going to do now for the rest of my life. It's why you feel guilty about thinking, well, let it be over. She's not going to get better. Please let it be over. But when it actually was over, it was just uh, it was it was brutal. The emptiness and the silence, and that it stopped, and we. None of us have really thought about what the next thing to do was. Um, I remember the nurse had asked us to leave the room to let her go. That's right, she'd asked us to leave the room, and we, we she obviously knew what she was doing. She was a wonderful woman, but I don't know, it didn't feel right to let, you know. But we did leave the room, and we came back in, and my mum was hanging around. Um, and I held her hand, and then my brother, elder brother arrived, and uh, then she went, and then the nurse said, oh, I need a few minutes. You know, she let us sit there for a little bit. And, and so we went out into the little um, room next door and she'd put some cake there for us and a little pot of tea. And it was just, uh, I don't know, I felt a, an urge to run back in. I'd left my mum alone, but but um, she wasn't there anymore. You know, she wasn't there anymore. 
it was a very confusing day, that whole... Uh, a lot of the Jewish rituals, I think, make great sense. You're meant to sit for seven days in the house with visitors coming every day and do prayers. And we're not religious at all, so we did one day. But after that one day, I was there and my wife and kids were there. And uh, my wife goes, well, I mean, the kids want to go to the beach. And I went, yeah. She goes, do you, do you want to come? And I was thinking, well, yeah, but I mean, it just feels... Who am I being disrespectful to by taking my little kids to the beach? You know, um, And so I... I I appreciated the ritual a lot of for enforced grief so that when it's over, you're ready to go, not not to go partying, but just to, you know, to leave the house because you've sat in it with nothing else for a week, uh, which I didn't get to do. But I didn't appreciate the fact that you bury someone the next day. You died at like 10 o'clock at night and we have to organize a funeral for two o'clock next afternoon. And it's mental. It's a mad scramble, you know. Um, I feel grateful that there was some structure like we knew what we were meant to do. She would have wanted us to do because that's what Jews have done for 5,000 years or something. Because in the absence of that, my family can't agree on what restaurant to go to the night, you know, what should we watch on telly. But the big thing is like what to do when someone dies. We would have torn each other apart. So I was grateful that it was a structure. I was just thinking back when, when you were talking about um, your mum's death and in the room and after she'd taken her last breath and then the nurse came in and how you know you were asked to leave the room and then you got an opportunity to go back in there was the tea and cake before your mum died did anybody have a conversation with you your brothers and your dad and family about what the end might be like and what kind of things you might expect you talked about the death rattle did any of this stuff or anybody talk about that no no, I like the version you're describing. <laughs> no, they didn't. I mean, it seemed obvious. First of all, my uh, elder brother's a doctor. His son, who came to visit also, uh, was five days, I think, out of medical school and walked in and went, we need to put a morphine up. It's near the end. And, you know, I've held him since he was a baby and here he was, this young man. He just he took charge because his dad hadn't arrived yet and he went to speak to the doctor and he was right because she was in that phase where you don't come back from, where the breathing goes a certain way. Um no, we had no conversation. My my eldest brother is a very practical, pragmatic, unemotional. I mean, in terms of displaying it, of course he feels emotions in a way. And he was there, uh, or on the phone, making just you know, just telling us what to do and how to do it. But, but I, we never talked about. Uh, we just presumed she'd fade. I mean, it was it was obvious. We I mean, what somebody turning skeletal and having greater difficulties with all their bodily functions and and, and losing. Presence, just not being present, it's going slightly milky. You know, it's, it, at some point, you know that it's going to stop. No one had told us there'll be a death rattle, so that was a slight surprise, the raspiness of the breath. But apart from that, no, no one had, no one had told us anything. We hadn't asked. I think sometimes in our work, I was just going to say that I think, you know, what what are the people I certainly come across in the course of my work, I would say, you know, you can ask if you want to. You can ask for information on dying and what it might look like or what it might be like. And of course, no one knows exactly what it's going to be like. Sure. But they can talk, you know, professionals can talk you through what the process might be like. So um, sort of prepares you a little. I think that we probably didn't want to ask for two reasons. One is that I have a brother there who's been around it a lot, you know, who's a doctor and son is a doctor. And so I just presumed, well, they're on top of that stuff. And then my dad, who's an interesting guy, has had many big health problems in his life. His heart has been rebuilt, you know, a thousand times. It's held together with string and sticky back plastic. And, you know, he takes cocktails of drugs in the morning. 
never asks the doctor what's going on. <laughs> he never wants to know what's going on with his own body at all. Just give me a thing to fix it and don't talk about it. So he was there, my dad, through all this. And I think he didn't want to know or talk about death or think about it. You get to a certain age when all your friends are dying off and you're watching your wife die. And, you know, he just he didn't want to engage with it, want to engage with what we're having for lunch. And so it wouldn't have been a conversation that he wanted. Plus, I felt my brothers knew. So, uh, yeah, it didn't feel a loss, you know. Um, in some ways, I was thinking about, oh, what are we going to talk about today? And I was thinking that death uh, is a, you know, it's obviously the flip side of pregnancy. And, and when my wife was pregnant, the first time at least, so much conversation about the birth, the day of the birth, so much conversation, how it's going to come out. We did we did natural birth classes, and then she wanted to do them again. So we were kind of, we were the know-it-all experts the second time, and so much conversation about drugs and epidurals. And then a baby comes, and you think, oh, blimey. We were concentrating so much on opening the door, we weren't thinking about what's on the other side, which is the rest of your life with a child. And in a way, the moment of death, or even how it happens, um, whilst huge and can be very traumatic, my wife's father died in a much, much more traumatic way that she's had enormous difficulty uh, coping with and processing. Um, but for me, the loss of my mum, grief, has nothing to do with the actual moment of death or how it happened. It's to do with someone not being around in your life, not being around for moments that seem important, not being around for your kids to know, for echoes of them in conversations or... Uh, something rather wonderful happened that I've mentioned maybe a few too many times that my mum was difficult. It's because we rowed a lot. She rowed with everyone a lot in the family and lots of drama in my life. Um, but within a relatively short period of time, I could only recall the good memories. If you'd asked me when she was alive about my mum, I could have told you a bunch of stories that were um, maybe not kind to her or, or maybe they're accurate, but she wouldn't have liked them. Um, but I, all the good stuff started to come back. And it was, uh, you know, it's the opposite of that Mark Antony speech in Julius Caesar. He says, well, you know, when he's dead, you only remember the evil things that people have done, the good lies interred with their bones. Well, actually, it's the opposite for me. I remember just lots of fond memories and lots of acts of love and stuff. And I don't think I was conscious of any of them when she was alive. I, I thought only of the things that had driven me nuts and the points at which we'd argued and how hard it was to get through any conversation. And um, so I think there's a lot of, I mean, this podcast is obviously about loss, uh, but the moment of death seems to me, in retrospect now, much less important than the fact of absence, you know, uh, in my life, in my family's life, in my father's life. Uh, and that's, I don't know, about harder to deal with. When you're dealing with a crisis or, or medical crisis, you know, you, you muster up what's needed, hopefully. But when you deal with something much more uh, intangible uh, that is coming to all of us when it's a parents, you know, when it's a child, it's a different thing or, or peers. Um, I don't know how to process that. I think it's turned into something quite positive. I'm, I'm just so frustrated that she's not around to see good things that happen. I, I wish she could see her grandchildren. My daughter started uh, Cambridge University. Frankly, it's a bit rubbish going to university now, but I just, my mother would have just exploded with pride. Um, and the memories that seem to disappear when someone goes, you go, there's all the things that happened to her that I know that she told me about her life. Have they gone now? Have they, they, you know, Who will ever remember those things? I find that much harder or more complicated to deal with than what you're asking about, which is what happened in the room and you know uh, the noises she made and stuff. That stuff is, is just practical, and we are protected from it. I hadn't been around it. Um, I was just so glad that I was able to do it, and it was as good a death as... Uh, 
we could hope for. I don't know if it's as good a death as my mum could hope for. The best way to avoid, you know, is to not die, you know. But but if you have to go, I guess, surrounded by the people you love, holding their hand with music you like and memories and photographs is probably, you know, uh, up there in the top five. The coronavirus pandemic has triggered a wave of bereavement across the country and taken away our ability to be with loved ones and grieve in traditional ways. Marie Curie's new Memory Cloud is an online space to reflect on a loved one's life and share special memories with your friends and family. Visit memorycloud.org.uk You talked about some of your experiences of grief and how it sounds like it's changed over time as well and and how now there's you know maybe significant things will happen like your daughter going to university um you know you kind of think about what your mum would have thought about that and how proud she would have been and so maybe sort of times when you think about her more than others what what do you remember about your sort of experience of grief just after she died Jason? I remember because uh, I've done a bit of work on myself in other contexts, forgiving myself for not thinking about it or for going to beach my kids or for laughing my brothers. I remember thinking, everything is all right. No one should feel guilty or feel bad for not feeling something or for feeling the wrong thing at the wrong time. Everything is all right. And that um, I knew everything would change. I knew that things, you know, that... that uh, there are moments of elation is wrong with there are moments when you're high on life and there's moments when you're not and, and that none of it is predictable and none of it should fit in a box and being able I think to offer some of that to people around me um, partly it's going to sound like a strange non sequitur I've done, I've, I'm an actor and so I've played lots of soldiers so I've been around a lot of people with um, trauma with PTSD and uh, you know sometimes it manifests long time afterwards 16 years they say is the average for people who've been in a war and you know there is no right or wrong way for it to come out it can be a supermarket that sets someone off it can be a ch- children's cry it can be you know it can be bright lights or, or um the wrong type of music and it can be years after the original trauma or seemingly entirely unrelated to it and so i just remember thinking no one should judge each other or themselves by how we're reacting to this and the fact that i'm not thinking about it that much now or in fact i'm not walking around feeling that miserable uh, it's maybe because I've been in that room for a couple of months and I'm glad not to be in the room and now with my kids there's joy and there's laughter and, and that uh, that all of it is okay. The only thing that isn't okay, the reason I mentioned PTSD is it is completely natural to come back from a war zone and be jumpy. It is not right. You shouldn't be somewhere where someone lifting a mobile phone could end your life and the lives of the people you love uh, and then be okay being in a restaurant with people lifting mobile phones. There is. It would be unnatural if you did. There is a period of time during which you should make an adjustment to your new reality. And anyone who isn't making an adjustment is avoiding something. And then there's it taking too long, or the scars never healing, or a wound staying open. Uh, and that's the time to seek different kinds of help, uh, I think, when you, you, where you go, look, it's, there's no rule. You know, you give yourself six months, and if you're still miserable after six months, you know. But, uh, but it's also true that death is natural. You know, it's part of life. Losing a parent is, is natural, too. And... Um, when and if it's it, your reaction to it doesn't feel to other people and to yourself, you know, uh, uh, like it's proportionate, then you need to think about it because some people grieve for years, and uh, their lives are massively compromised. And I, if I know anything about my mum and certainly me when I go, 
I don't want people to be miserable for years because they might get run over by a bus. I want them to live their life. You know? um, so the question was, what did I feel? I felt like whatever I was feeling was okay. And I was right because I didn't feel that much at the time. I was, you know, I, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to go back to work filming and I'm going to arrange this funeral. And I'm, you know, I was upset at the funeral, of course. It all, you know, the waves of it came on the day and uh, we had to look at the body in the coffin, which was monstrous and no one had warned us and they didn't do any kind of preservation. So my mum looked... I thought, oh, God, that's how I'm going to think for the rest of my life, like something from a horror film. But actually, I don't. Uh, um, but I just remember thinking, I mean, should, uh, should I feel guilty that I'm having fun with my kids and I've gone to the beach with my kids or whatever, you know, ended this as a holiday uh, in a way? No. And, and I was right not to, I think, because not because there is a quota for grief and that I got mine later, but because there is no wrong reaction, you know. And uh, and so my mum was ready to go. She'd been... She'd been not right in her head for quite a long time and then she was not right physically a long time and so I, I no part of me thinks oh I wish she was still around because I'm able to go if she was around she'd be rotten with cancer and more demented and more unhappy so uh yeah I wasn't laid low my wife's father gone and she's bit, she was broken just utterly broken by it um but I wasn't broken by my mum um and I, I, I like to think that's because it was a healthier reaction that, that if you've done things right and you've made your relationship right with people and you're right with the world, then it's sad, but it shouldn't stop your life. But then even using the word shouldn't seems inappropriate. No. So I was fine. The answer is I was fine. And then moments came around when I wasn't fine. And then I was fine again. And uh, it's changed over time. And, you know, I've never been... I haven't fallen to the floor, tearing my hair out and sobbing, but uh, I don't know if that's a consequence of me or who who my mum was or, or, you know, our relationship. I'd feel that way if I lost a child, I think, or my wife. That would be a very different thing. What was your mum's name, Jason? My, well, my mum's name was Linda Isaacs, although that's not what's on her passport. She was Sheila Linda Isaacs. She went to school. And the first day, the teacher went, right, we've got five Sheilas, you'll be Linda. And um, so she was called by a middle name all of her life. It was the first of, uh, maybe that's the smallest injustice that was done to her. There were many others in her life, but uh, they fueled this remarkable uh, woman. So just as well. I'm going to change direction a little bit and ask a different question in a second. But I wanted to thank you for sharing your story about your mum. And, um, you know, I was really, um, while you've been talking, not just about the story of your mum's death, but also your own grief, um, I kind of couldn't help but put myself in that seat where people who are listening to it, who might be grieving or caring for somebody who's dying and just how helpful. All that stuff you talked about is, you know, I think for somebody who's listening, there's something about normalising death and dying. So I'm, I'm 57 years old. I, I don't know many people who've got two parents alive. You know, at my age, your parents are going to die. We're, we're going to die. I'm going to die too. I'm terrified of it. I don't like to think about it and engage with it. But I mean, uh, so, yeah, anyone who's listening who's dealing with it, it's, it's awful. And anything you think or feel is absolutely fine. You know, if you think, God, I wish they were dead tomorrow or I hope they'll live forever and my life will be empty and ruined without them. You know, first of all, the only thing constant is change. So this too shall pass. You know, everything changes and it's okay. Whatever you're dealing with is, is absolutely fine and any of your thoughts are fine. 
that's the thing. Thoughts aren't actions for a start. So, you know, I'm, we've all driven down the road thinking, God, you know, I, I could just swerve this car into that line of traffic. Well, that you didn't. You thought it. That's absolutely okay. If you're obsessed with it, then go and seek some help. But, uh, yeah, I hope everybody or anybody who listens, uh, I don't think I have any wisdom <laughs> to offer anyone. But just my experience was um, because I was a drug addict when I was younger and, and uh, so I, I'm not dealt with, you know, but uh, I've engaged with a kind of journey of the self. Uh, one of the things that I've learned from other people's wisdom is everything is all right. All the things that you're thinking are okay. Unless you're taking actions which are destructive to other people yourself, it's all all right. There's, there's no rule for what you should be thinking or feeling. You know, and, and uh, it'll happen in time. And I think also when you're grieving, you've got enough to deal with without the additional, um, you know, baggage of guilt. And so I think there's just something about just go easy on yourself as well. I mean, I look, my mum going, I don't feel bad saying this. I'm all right with it. I was all right with it because she was ready to go and because I had been prepared. She was not well for a long time. And my dad was trapped caring for someone who was really, really you know it was not he wasn't drawing on a bank of 60 years of uh hallmark romantic love you know they had a fractious relationship anyway and now she's very difficult at the end so part of my mum going was a relief for her i could feel her fear in every conversation that the abyss of her mind would be exposed i could always feel that uh, towards the end and also relief for my dad that he didn't have to do that anymore and, you know i don't feel uh, bad for not feeling bad you know I miss her sometimes uh, but I don't miss how she was at the end you know I miss some version of her from long ago and um, if your life is empty or and, and you feel an enormous weight on your shoulders and the pain of loss um, I feel terribly sorry for you that that hasn't been my experience and it's and I don't feel bad about not feeling that and I, I empathize with anyone else who is feeling that and if at some point it's too much and out of proportion, like anything in life. Uh, there are loads of people who can help professionally. They've seen it a million times. We've, only, we've all only experienced it once. You know, There are people who see patients, clients, customers, whatever, all the time, and, and they, they can help. Do you think about your own death? Only now you're asking. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do, I, I suppose. Uh, and it, I do that thing that 12-year-olds do, of thinking, oh, well, it's 400 years away. You know, couldn't. Although I wake up creakier in the morning, I stupidly have done lots of my own stunts in my uh, working life as an actor, and I'm now paying the price for it. And um, I don't know how I'd like. I mean, I was Matthew McConaughey, the American actor, his father died making love to his mother, in that kind of cliched way. That's from Roger McGough poem, you know. And uh, uh, I don't know. I want to inflict that on my wife. But uh, yeah, I, I think less about how I die because it's not a pleasant thing it's very you know uh, I don't want to fade slowly in enormous pain you know I hope that the pain relief will, will be great I suppose uh, uh, when I think about it if I think about it at all the the uh, action of death you know the methodology of it uh, it seems to be binary do I want to go suddenly by accident you know the bungee snaps or the, the car goes off the road or do I want to have time to say goodbye to everybody and get sick and fade um and I, 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 I'm still on the fence on that one. I don't know, um, but I know having listened to your podcast, uh, you know that you ask about what's your legacy, what you want to leave behind you, and um, so I don't want to get ahead of your questions. I presume you're going there somewhere. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. But dude, please, you know, I'm I'm really pleased to hear you've listened to a few as well, you know, Jason. It's great. Yeah, no, they're great. They're, they're very comforting and interesting. And most podcasts are, you know, people touting their latest book or television program or whatever, you know, philosophy. And it's just nice to listen to people have serious conversations about uh, important things that will come to all of us. But um, no, I don't think about my death itself uh, because I won't have any control over it anyway. Uh, I'm I'm probably take too many risks in life physically because I like it. I go too fast down the side of a mountain or jump off things I shouldn't or whatever. Uh, and uh, I hope not to be in massive pain, obviously. Um, I hope to be able to give some comfort to my kids. But what I really think about is what's going to happen after I die. What will I leave? Um, but not uh, professionally. I couldn't give a monkey something. I, I don't care. Even now when I do things, whether anybody ever sees a film or television program or, you know, I wouldn't like to go out on stage in the theatre with nobody having bought a ticket because that would be embarrassing. But, uh, you know, I do it because I lo- I'm curious about human nature and I love exploring people. What, what are the building blocks of personalities and choices and actions? And I, and I crave the interesting social interaction with the other people I'm doing it with. So the net result I don't care about. And no one ever knew that I was an actor. I just, it's so enormously unimportant. The only thing that's important to me is how I've not even how I live on in the lives and choices of my children because I don't want them to be thinking oh dad would have done this dad would have done that I just hope that I have passed on things that are useful to them that help them that allow them to live good fulfilling lives and be kind and and seek out people who are kind to them Uh, and you do that by actions not words I mean it doesn't stop me lecturing them all the time if they'll listen but um yeah, the only thing I, I will want to have passed on is a, a way to navigate through I, what I suspect will be a much trickier existence than I've had. I think the next generation is going to be hard. I mean, if you know, things are not getting better in the world, particularly in, on many different metrics. So that, I just want to leave behind fond memories if they think of me and great choices that lead to them um, feeling good about themselves and doing good in the world. That's you know that will be more than enough. I'm much more concerned. I mean about the actual arrangements. You know what to do, what the ceremony will be, where we get. But I'm Jewish. My wife's not. I don't really care about religion at all. But some bizarre tribal link makes me worry about not doing something ritually Jewish when I'm dead, as if I care. You know. Have you had those conversations with your wife? I mean, is any of that written down? No. No, I mean, we do, my wife and I don't avoid talking about proper things, you know, like I did growing up in my family, but we just can't decide on anything. And I guess we don't want to think that we're going to die soon. My parents bought plots in a, in a cemetery uh, near them um, just as a practical thing because they, you know, they were expensive. They were going up or something. But we, you know, we are far from having made sensible arrangements. Uh, um, I'm glad that our kids are growing up. They're 18 and 15 now and... Uh, you know, within a few years, we won't have to worry about who would be the guardian and if there was any money left at all, who would administer it and that stuff, because we couldn't agree on any of it. And I guess we didn't even really want to think about it. But yeah, so the admin and bureaucracy of, of death and its aftermath, we haven't dealt with at all. But I do think about it. And I hope that by living right or making the right choices, I can my kids will, will be able to live with themselves in, in ways that make them comfortable enough to fall asleep at night without regret 
You know, if you can lie there in bed when the lights go off and go, that wasn't a bad day. I did the best I could do. It wasn't just all for me. And the things I did wrong, I'm going to make right tomorrow. That's that's a good day. I think uh, one of the reasons we do the podcast, you know, is to encourage people to have conversations about death and dying. And part of that encouragement is for people to think about their own deaths or have conversations with their families about um, about death and what they might want and then make some plans or write some things down or or tell people. That's very sensible. <laughs> and of course, you know, I'm not, not 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 suggesting you have them conversations every Sunday at two o'clock. No, no, you're right. But you know, maybe a one-off. No, but you're right. We haven't done it, and we should do. And I tell you, what's what's. I studied law originally before I became an actor, and I I remember so little of it. I can barely remember how to spell the word law. But but one of the areas uh, that I remember being fascinating was um, testate. When, you know, when people die without a will, or a will is argued and over and challenged, and families tear themselves apart over a chest of drawers you know it's not it's not the giant sums of money or because it's really nothing to do with the items mostly or money it's far more to do with the emotional fault lines in the family that come out and we uh we were quite for a family that argue a lot we were quite good about you know gravestone and what's beyond it and even how many sandwiches we should get for the people who came on the day after you could feel the underlying tension them at some point I had a row with my elder brother about loading the car up with suitcases and we nearly came to blows and it was just so weird that suddenly there was this real viciousness from him and me um obviously nothing to do with the suitcases in the car at all and we nearly started punching each other um so it can be the smallest slightest thing so you're absolutely right of course it would be great to settle things like arrangements for a funeral, what you like, and the music, and the, you know, buried or cremated, all this stuff. Um, the, the more difficult things are around if I'm incapacitated and you ask people to do things that are illegal. You know, will you switch my machines off? Will you smother me? And I don't know if people really would. And do you really want that at that point if you could live, uh, but, you know, you're, you're physically compromised? You know, you can think that you wouldn't like to live at times like, you know, I remember my mother saying, if I'm ever, you know, if I can't move or I can't speak, you know, kill me and I do remember saying that. Uh, I wouldn't want to live, but I don't know that anyone takes it seriously because who knows what you want in those moments. It's like that. that, um, uh, I have quite a few friends who are journalists, and one of my bugbears that absolutely destroys me is when a proper serious journalist that does an important job in the world asks someone how they're going to feel when something happens. How do you know? Nobody knows how they're going to feel when something happens. That's the point about human emotions. Um, so it is best, you're right, I'm sure, to make as many of the arrangements as firm as possible. Uh, but um, but I haven't. <laughs> I will try. Maybe I will use this conversation as inspiration to begin to make those plans. But My wife and I have had 33 years of bickering together. Hopefully we'll have another 33. We never agree on anything. And that's like sofa or what to have for dinner. So I don't know. I wonder how close we'll come to consensus on the big issues. And there may, there may be consensus, there might not be. You know, you might want different things. You might not want the same things from your death. You, as you just described earlier, you know, you've kind of come from, um, like, like lots of people come from different backgrounds with maybe different um, religious or cultural influences. And so it's, um, it's a joint conversation and a family conversation, but I think it's an individual wish, isn't it? It is. I mean... If I think about it properly, and I'm completely honest with myself, it doesn't matter. And so whether they dance down the aisle to Bob Marley or whether I'm cremated or whether they, you know, take me out and 
and let the wolves eat me on Hampstead Heath. It really doesn't make the slightest bit of difference. And it's a feels to me like a bit of ego going, I'll curate it so well. You go, God, he threw a good funeral for himself. I love that, you know, and he had the toad in the hole, which he always liked. Uh, I don't know. And once you've gone, you've gone. It's really for the people who are left. It should be best. They get together and go, well, how can we best remember him? What will remind us most of him? You know, the course of my professional life a few times, I've had to um, play people who are still alive, play real life characters. Uh, And I've spoken to them or met them. And you ask them to tell you about themselves. And it's a woefully inaccurate picture of himself. Or rather, you then ask their relatives and their friends and their enemies, and they go, he's nothing like that. That's not what he, that's not what he does. And um, so, you know, planning your own funeral is is like trying to leave a little, you know, style stamp on the world. But, but really, who knows till you get there where, how you want your death to be, how you want the process to be. You know, you, you can predict all you like. I, um, switch me off early. I don't want to be seen fading. And then you're there and you go, no, I want to see my children tomorrow. I want to see my grandchildren tomorrow. I want to watch another episode of Holby City. One more, you know. Um, so, yes, inspired by you, I will have the conversation. I don't know where we'll get. And I'm sure it's very useful. But the main reason to have it is because otherwise the people who are left, you're giving them ammunition to have stupid arguments that are not about that at all because they'll be feeling so tense and so upset. And that's the main reason to, to settle these things, is to, to allow people like I had, because you know, my, of how Jewish my mum was, we went, okay, sh- this is exactly what's meant to happen. It's prescribed. So we can do that, and these are the things that you're meant to say. And so we, there was no room to argue about them. And that was a relief. I was just thinking there when you were talking, I was reminded of when I was younger and my dad would always say to me, my brother, and I was like really young. I mean, sort of probably seven, eight. And um, it was really important to them that my brother and I knew where the tin was. And there was a tin in the wardrobe with a will in and some other bits of paper. Yeah, my mum, that's right. My mum used to say to me, uh, if they come again, I'll have swallowed the jewellery. <laughs> she didn't really have any jewellery. She had nothing worth a penny, you know, really. But what she meant was, if the Nazis come, I will have swallowed it. The Nazis come to Israel. I don't know. I mean, who knows? But... Uh, Never say never nowadays with the madness going on in the political world. But but um, she said it more than once in my life when I was a kid, you know. I was thinking, so you're saying some Nazis have come, they've killed you, they left the body, it's very kind of them, and I should cut open your stomach to <laughs> to find these frankly not very valuable pieces of uh, jewellery. Okay, thanks for that, Mum. We can probably let that one to rest. <laughs> As you said, usually at this point... I'd probably start to talk about legacy and after death, but I think we've already touched on that. Jason, just before we do finish today, can I ask what it's meant for you to be able to share your story today on the Marie Curie couch? I feel some relief. Um, I guess it goes back to what I said right at the beginning. You know, we were talking about my mum dying, and I had a very difficult relationship with my mum. A lot of people did. Uh, and her death brought me some comfort because of the lucky way it happened. I was able to be there and that she turned very, very sweet at the end and wasn't argumentative anymore. And, um, but I learned from her that if you are of use, of service anywhere, that is that is the deepest satisfaction you can have. And so I don't know if it's been of use of people to listen to me say uh, any of this, but the one thing I hope people take from it that, that I forgive myself a lot in life. doesn't mean I give myself license very badly. But particularly when it comes to emotions um, and thoughts, which aren't actions, um, that I, I, 
what it's meant to me is I'm, I feel uh, relieved and glad and it's been a privilege to share with people that they should not feel bad for anything that they feel. There's no, you know, this is not a, uh, it's not a Meccano kit. And the way we're all put together inside and the, you know, the uh, sum total of things that have happened to us and how they emerge, just never feel bad about it and allow them to come out and you have no idea what's going to happen over time. The people who are sobbing on the day and someone else who isn't crying and you think is hard-hearted, no idea what's going on inside you or anybody else. And um, so that, it's been a privilege to talk about it uh, for myself and also the faint notion that it might have provided any comfort to anybody else who are living through these very difficult experiences. And by the way, I'm here because Marie Curie does amazing things. And when people don't have the family members around or willing or available, they provide love. Yeah, they provide care and stuff. They provide a rest and a break for people if they have carers. But in the absence of that, towards the end of life, they help the end to be as serene and beautiful and loving as they can be. And so I'm here to support them and anyone listening, if you choose to support them, you're supporting a really wonderful organization. Jason Isaacs, thank you. Well, thanks for having me. So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help. From planning ahead to coping with bereavement, you can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. This podcast is made by Marie Curie, a national charity that supports people affected by terminal illness. For more information and support, you can visit our website, mariecurie.org.uk. The podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. The music featured is Time Lapse by Panoceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.